This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison, from Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here with this week's guest, Jerry Ferrara. Jerry, why should they listen this week? They should listen because I drove here to do the podcast with a broken rib, and they should totally find out how I broke my rib. Subscribe to Allison Rosen is your new best friend on iTunes or go to AllisonRosen.com. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. I love you. Allison's your new best friend. Live from the Los Angeles Podfest in Beverly Hills, California, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who drinks too much. Well, hiya, folks, and uh, welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? (laughs) And that picture kind of scares me. I want to talk to you about it for a second, but first, I, I do want to mention that song, that band, that piece of music that you just heard that is our theme song, that was found by Colonel Jeff, who's the producer of the show, and it it, it makes me happy every time I hear it. There are some days when you're a little sluggish, some days you're a little annoyed or a little cranky, but you know what? That music always makes me feel top-notch and just ready to do anything, and especially something I love like this show, like the world of podcasting anyway. And this show. And it's worth telling you about this picture because it's never up there. That is one of, obviously, my pictures. And as you can see, I'm not bald. (laughs) I was in a movie where the photographer on it, the set photographer, was a really top-notch photographer. And he was very nice. And in addition to taking all the actors' photos, he said to me, I would like to take new photos of you. And I asked my publicist and my agent and my manager, who were all there, and they said, this guy is great. You have to do this. You have to, because this guy is great. And he was, he was a zillion-dollar photographer. He just charged all the money in the world. And he cut his rate by a huge amount, which was still crazy. It was, <laughs> it was not healthy. And he had a studio... Uh, not too far from here, actually, in a fancy part of uh, Los Angeles showbiz. I don't know what this means, by the way, but, <laughs> but he had it. And it was, a, it was a very artful and arty studio he was in. And he did, my publicist was there with me for two days. We did photos all day long for two days. And he was doing it in all sorts of ways. And I kept looking at my, well, Michael, my friend and publicist, he kept saying, this is good, this is good, this guy is great. And the thing is, when we went back on the third day to look at all the photos, to pick them, they all looked like that, meaning he cut the head off in the same spot. And I said to him, uh, do you have any where it's the full face of the actual human? I mean, and he just said, no, I cut them all like this. And I said, why? And he did You don't see this a lot in life. 
he started to speak, then he just looked, looked around like it's a big secret. <laughs> and he said, this way, no one knows you're bald. <laughs> and I said to him, but I'm bald. <laughs> and he said, now no one knows. It's not difficult to understand. I thought this was the dumbest man in history. Or I, either I was or he was. So now you're, I looked at him, he looked at me, and I looked at Michael, the publicist, and Michael said, it's good. So now I have zillion-dollar photos that were just a tenth of his normal rate, and they were still a zillion dollars. And... Well, that's, they all look like that. So I have different outfits where you put on a shirt and a jacket, and it cuts your head off about there. And I don't know to whom I'd ever say, see, I'm not bald. <laughs> I, uh, and I even said that to him, but it's in show business, as an actor, as a comic, as a writer, I, I think they know I'm bald. And he said, you'd be surprised. And that's when I decided, this conversation is over. It's not, not to be cruel, but you want to say, it's not going anywhere. And I'm going to take the photos, because we just spent two days doing it. And I already gave him half the money, and I was going to give him the other half. So the point is, I had new photos, and there they are. Seems like a nice fella. Well, you know what, though? <laughs> it, it, it is amazing. And uh, I, I just have to say, to the, it's worth mentioning about the band again. That's the Walker Yule Orchestra and the Briley Bannister Dancers featuring boy tenor Russ Hopfer asking the musical question, Can you actually sham a lamb a ding-dong? For good or ill, he wrote that in. He invented that. He wrote that. And I always ask, answer the musical question. And I, I, first of all, Russ, wherever you are, and I, I hope you're listening, but can I or anyone actually shamalama ding-dong? I don't know. Because I don't know what shamming is or what a ding-dong is. I really don't. I, I, I know that I, I support, I love music from the 50s or 40s or 60s or the, or the 1840s. It doesn't matter what it is, but can you, I shamalam and ding dong? I don't know. I, and I, the only thing I asked, you know, the, uh, the producer, Colonel Jeff, and the engineer, Dr. Chris, I said, is th that like anything like ting ting, walla walla, bing bang? We, that, that's one song I remember. Ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, ting, tang, walla, walla, bing, bang. Ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, ting, ting, walla, walla, bing, bang. I'm amazed I could say that. I don't think I ever have before. But Russ, all affection to you. I, I, I don't know if you can, if one can ever, sham-a-lam-a-ding-dong. I, I, I want to say I hope not. Because it doesn't sound amiable. 
Do you know what I mean? It sounds, it sounds dangerous. So, Russ, let us know right back onto our Facebook, which, by the way, is... Let me just check. We've done so many of these shows, and I never... Oh, yes, our website. The Colonel and the Doctor both know this. I always have to look through the window in the studio with them because I can never remember. I don't know a lot about the technical world of putting on a day like this, several shows like this, or our show every week. Uh, so I, I never know the name of it. It's LarryMillerPodcast.com, which always sounds to me like LarryMillerPodcast.com. <laughs> you know? Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. But that's what it, what it sounds like. And so, so, Russ, write back to us on that if you ever find out more evidence about shamalanging a ding-dong. Thank you for writing, and the answer for now is no. <laughs> and by Amazon. That's right. Amazon is one of the sponsors of our show, and they're a great sponsor. They may be the, the best business ever made in the history of the world, and I'll tell you why. Because what you do is you go to Amazon, but you don't go yourself. What you do is go to our website at LarryMillerPodcast.com and, <laughs> and we have a banner that says Amazon on it. Click our banner and then take a nap, sit down in a chair, do a crossword puzzle, just relax, and we will take you there. Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris and I will wake up. If it's the middle of the night, we'll get up and we'll go right down to the studio and we'll get you to Amazon. And what they do is whatever you order, it, it makes everyone happy. It's the only business I can ever think, think of where everyone's happy. You order whatever you can possibly imagine. So that makes you happy. Amazon will send it to you, and that makes them happy. And they send us at the show a percentage of whatever you order. And that makes us happy. <laughs> we, we put that money toward the next fancy fried chicken dinner we're all going to get. That's the colonel, the doctor, and me. And that always starts with two drinks at a bar. And you know what, though? That's why Amazon is a good group. And by PayPal. That's right, PayPal. PayPal is a really nice group of folks, and it's like making yourself better in the world. It's kind of like giving to a charity in a way. And our suggestion is always go to PayPal, and what you do is to figure out how much money to send them Go to your local bar, your favorite bar, or a bar you've never been to, but go in there in the middle of the day when no one's there, two or three in the afternoon, there's no one anywhere in the place, and the bartender is just sitting there himself reading a magazine with his leg up on the speed rack, and go over to him and say, how much is a drink? How much do you charge for a drink? And whatever his answer is, multiply, multiply by three and send it to us. <laughs> And that buys one drink. <laughs> Can you think of a better way? That buys one drink for Colonel Jeff, one for Dr. Chris, and one for me. So thank you for <laughs> contributing to Amazon and to PayPal. And if you're saying to yourself, hey, wait a minute, so, that you, so you, you get something out of that if we do. Why be technical?
And that brings us to my, my favorite part of the show, the joke. <laughs> of the week. <laughs> Colonel Jeff found those. Comedy is fun. It really is. The, the sillier it gets. Silly is a great word. It's a great adjective describing comedy. Whenever people think, oh, it's lighter. It's not as weighty as some official subjects. I swear I don't get that and I've never gotten it. I, I don't want to watch three or four economists on C-SPAN. Uh, nothing against C-SPAN and nothing against economists. But boy, about seven words in, I'm, I'm that close to blowing my brains out. You, you know what I mean? I, I just, I can't. I can't listen to this. I like comedy. And... Uh, you know what, by the way, that's why a joke of the week, I love to write comedy, but this is not comedy for my act. This is not comedy in, in a comic's way. It's a comedy in your way, in my way, in the way that it's fun to hear a joke. It's fun to tell a joke. It's fun to pass on a joke, just a regular joke, if you like it. You can tell a friend or tell a family, family member, and it keeps comedy alive, and I love a good joke. And here's one, and I tell one every week on the show because people don't know that I'm not bald. <laughs> you got me. And uh, I tell one every week, and here's the one for this week. Uh, an old man goes in Philadelphia where he lives. He's not wealthy, he's not well-to-do, but he saves up his money. There's a really nice restaurant he always wanted to go to, and he says, I'm going there and get myself a nice sit-down meal, and he does... And it's an appropriately fancy place, but they're friendly enough to him. And he sits down there, and his waiter has, they all have nice outfits on, tuxedos, and uh, with shorter jackets. And he notices everybody in there, and everyone is well-dressed. And he notices that as he's eating his meal, that all the waiters, including his, have a spoon in their hanky pocket. They all have one. And... He's curious about it, and he enjoys his meal, and it doesn't take that long. He's there alone. So as he's having coffee at the end of the meal and a small bite of dessert, his waiter comes over. Was everything all right? And he says, yes, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you, though. I, I, I'm, I'm curious. I noticed that you and all the waiters have a spoon in their jacket pockets. What is the spoon for? And the waiter says, I'll tell you. He said, first of all, do you notice that I and all the waiters have a long white string sticking out of our zippers in our pants? And he said, well, yes, I was wondering about that too. And the waiter says, that's in order to be clean, when we have to go to the bathroom, that's what we do. We pull the string, that gets everything out, <laughs> and we can do our business and then wash up and everything's fine. And the man says... Well, well, I, I think I understand. So you, 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 you pull the string and get everything out. Um, well, I'm just curious. How do, you, how do you get it back in? And he says, oh, we all use the spoons. <laughs> well, that's one of those I and the colonel and the doctor thought was, was cute and fun. And if you like that, 
please pass it on to one of your friends or family members. And it's one of the stories that I always call a shaggy dog story. It's not my phrase. It's an old phrase in comedy, a shaggy dog story, meaning that you can fix it any way you like. You can tell what the restaurant looks like. You can add certain things, how this guy is dressed, what he does for a living. You can make it any way you like. And that's what's called a shaggy dog story. And, of course, the point is just to get to what the spoon is for. <laughs> and the more fun the joke is, the more it helps you forget how hideous that is. <laughs> Which brings us on to my f second favorite part of the show. The... <laughs> the Poetry Corner. That's right. The Corner of Poetry. Which is just... That was someone coughing on the, on the recording, if you heard there, by the way. Well, that's so nice. A string quartet. But good poetry is like a good joke. Great poetry by a great poet makes us feel different. It shows us a different look at life. Something we wouldn't have thought of. Neither you nor I would have thought of. And when a poet really does the job well, it moves us. And it... it, it it helps us a lot. I'll tell you what I mean. This one is by a great poet named Robert William Service. He's, uh, he was born in 1874 and uh, died in 1958. And he's a poet and a writer who has often been called the Bard of the Yukon. I know. I don't know how big a compliment that is. <laughs> That's what I thought. You read it and you kind of, you know... Like when the dotted line comes out of your eye, the bar of the Yukon, fair enough with me. But this guy is known for the shooting of Dan McGrew, many great poems that people like, really long poems. And he has the most successful book of poetry of the 20th century that has sold more than 3 million copies, which is uh, pretty good and enough to make you the bard of the, U the Yukon, I think. Hang on a sec. So here we go. It's really something when a poem shows us something we didn't see before. And I think Mr. Service has done it with this. This is a poem he wrote called Carry On. It's easy to fight when everything's right and you're mad with the thrill and the glory. It's easy to cheer when victory's near and wallow in fields that are gory. It's a different song when everything's wrong, when you're feeling infernally mortal, when it's ten against one and hope there is none. Buck up, little soldier, and chortle. Carry on, carry on. There isn't much punch in your blow. You're glaring and staring and hitting out blind. You're muddy and bloody, but never you mind. Carry on, carry on. You haven't the ghost of a show. It's looking like death, but while you've got a breath, carry on, my son, carry on. And so, in the strife of the battle of life, it's easy to fight when you're winning. It's easy to slave and starve and be brave when the dawn of success is beginning. But the man who can meet despair and defeat with a cheer, there's the man of God's choosing. The man who can fight to heaven's own height is the man who can fight 
when he's losing. Carry on, carry on, things never were looming so black, but show that you haven't a cowardly streak, and though you're unlucky, you never are weak. Carry on, carry on, brace up for another attack. It's looking like hell, but you never can tell. Carry on, old man, carry on. There are some who drift out in the deserts of doubt, and some who in brutishness wallow. There are others, I know, who in piety go because of a heaven to follow, but to labor with zest and to give of your best for the sweetness and joy of the giving, to help folks along with a hand and a song. Why, there's the real sunshine of living. Carry on, carry on, fight the good fight and true. Believe in your mission, greet life with a cheer. There's big work to do, and that's why you are here. Carry on, carry on. Let the world be the better for you. And at last, when you die, let this be your cry. Carry on, my soul. Carry on. Thank you. There's a great, there's a great way to read poetry. There are funny poems and wonderful poems. Some you know, like Casey at the Bat. And there's always something. There are hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands you never had any contact with and you never knew about. And I hope that was one of them. And I hope it was worth your while. And that brings us to my third favorite portion of the show. First of all, thank God you can hear that too. Because you never know, maybe that's the thing before you go to heaven. You know, it's not like a bell ringing, it's not that. It's just some, it's just some lighter jazz from the 60s. This is the triple M, or what I love to to do and to call it the magic movie moment. This is something, as I know we share as well, something where in movies you like, in movies you love, sometimes you've seen the movie 10, 20, 30 times, and every time it comes on, there's a portion of it you like extra special. It's one scene, or it's one of the actors who acts a certain way, or it's a portion of the script, or it's some of the storytelling, or it's the way it's shot and the light that's used. But it's something that moves you, and it doesn't even necessarily have to do with the story. Sometimes it does, but it makes you feel great, and you look forward to it every time that movie comes on, and you wait for it every time the movie is on. And that's what makes it, for you, a magic movie moment. It can be with the heaviest movies or with the lightest movies, and this one is one I love, I've seen dozens of times, and it always makes me feel great. It's called A Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers. It's from 1935. If you've never seen it, A Night at the Opera, see it sometime. It's so funny. It's so good. And it makes you again realize at a time when the world seems to get worse every day, with crazier people every day, 
when you see a great comedy and it just takes you away and you have no problem buying everything that's in it. Part of the premise, and these guys, these Marx Brothers do it so well. The writing, the directing, the acting is always so good. And in this one, it has well, love, and all the good things you want in life. And there is a moment in it, though, and I still remember this, and I still do this, but the first time I saw it, when the orchestra for the opera is playing, and it's very official, but they've been making it funny the whole way along. And the orchestra is playing the overture to the opera, and it's very heavy opera. It's a serious 19th century Italian opera. And what the Marx Brothers have done is, at one point, they slip one sheet of music that we see as, the, as, as all the musicians in the opera orchestra turn the page. You see one sheet of music, and it says on the top, Take me out to the ball game. And at that second, in this movie, they, as the, the orchestra is, 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 well, it's going up in volume, it's going up in arpeggios, it's going up in everything you love about an orchestra, and then as soon as they turn the, play, the page, they just keep playing, and you hear, dun, 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 dun. in an opera where everyone is dressed formally, and at that point, well, Groucho comes out, and he's selling popcorn, and he, and Harpo starts to have a catch with Chico in the orchestra. It's so silly in the great way again. And folks, I remember when you see this movie sometime, if you've seen it before, see it again. If you've never seen it, see it again. There's, see it for the first time. There's so much in it, but I will never forget the first time that page turned and they went into that and those guys started walking around being silly. I fell over. I was, I don't know whether I was 10 or 15 years old, but I'm telling you, I slid off the couch in the den and I was whacking the floor. <laughs> and that's a great way to feel. And that, that moment, sometimes it's love, sometimes it's a fight, sometimes it's something military for a magic movie moment. But in this case, it's just terrific comedy. And that always is something I look forward to again and will never forget. Take a look at that sometime. That's a magic movie moment for this week. And I hope for you, next time you see it, A Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers, there'll never be anyone like them again. There are good comics out there, and I hope I'm one of them. But you know what? There'll never be anyone who can make A Night at the Opera. And you know something that reminded me I was, when I got started in comedy at the comic strip in New York, I was a bartender there. They made me a bartender. And I was very grateful because I was a musician there. I was the drummer there on weekends. And they knew I wanted to quit my job at Amtrak, which was a good place to work. But they came to me one day, uh, Richie and John and Bob, the owners, and they said, we've decided to make you the bartender here to give you a couple of bartending nights and you can quit your job with that money. And I was very touched and I thought, that's great. And I started the next night at the next show. And you know what? I have everything it takes to be a great bartender. I was a great bartender with one tiny flaw. I can't make drinks. 
I can't. I can drink them okay, but I, 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 I don't know how to make drinks. I mean, any drink. Technically, sure, I could make a scotch and soda or a gin and tonic or a thing and a thing, but they're never consistent. I don't know how to, I don't know how much to put in or sometimes they're dark brown, light brown. But I really don't, and I don't know anything about other drinks of, you know, uh, Brandy Alexander or the uh, slow, comfortable something. <laughs> and I, I didn't know how to make drinks. And these guys are tough, old, cool bar owners, and they never asked me, by the way, can you make drinks? <laughs> it's the kind of thing even experienced bar owners forget. The first night a bar is open, they did this too. Everyone always forgets things. They, you forget to buy something. They forgot the gray bus trays, the thing that all the plates go in, and those big gray plastic rubbery things. You've all seen them a thousand times, and they didn't get them. They, Oops, uh-oh. <laughs> so they get by, and they got some the next day. But they never asked me, can you make drinks? And I went down there. I was thrilled. I wasn't trying to put anything over on them. I just thought... This is great. I, I could be a great bartender. But I was thinking about the posture, about the acting of it. I thought I could wear the right bartender clothes, and I could, again, like the other guy I mentioned in the joke, have my foot up on the speed rack and just look like a terrific bartender. And you're always going, oh, hiya, folks. Come on in, you know. <laughs> and I didn't, but I didn't know how to make drinks. So for the sh And this is a show. There's 400 people in there ordering drinks. And the waitresses, we had seven or eight waitresses, and they were all singers and actresses, and they'd come out and order seven drinks, and she'd put a tray down. I remember Michelle did this, and uh, I put down seven bottles of Bud. <laughs> on her tray, and I opened them, and she said, well, Larry, they didn't order beer. And I said, tell them it's free. Again, what would you do? But, and she said, she was all right, she's a very nice young girl, and she said, okay. So she went out, and they were as happy as could be. So every time a waitress came up, the whole night, I did the same thing. Here's, I put bottles of Bud on the tray, tell them it's free, they told them it's free. Now, this means, of course, the bar isn't making any money. And at one point, they noticed there was a canoe-sized hole in the beer cooler. All the beer was gone, but there was no money. And I was going to pay for it. This is no baloney. I was going to you know, say, uh, I... And so when I went back to work the next night... To, and that's the amazing part of this to me. These guys are the most experienced bar owners I've ever known, and tough guys. And they hired me back again. And I started bartending again. The show started at 8, and I was there again. I hadn't learned to make any drinks. And I did the same thing. Whatever beer was in there, Tuborg, I think, or something, they got. They got something cheaper than Bud, and I just kept pop and putting them on the train. The waitresses were fine, because the customers never complained, and they would tip the waitresses. So the waitresses would still get, say, 20 bucks, and they would deliver the beers... But after the second night, they called me in, and they weren't even... And these, are, these are tough guys. These are guys 
who would, you know, take you out to New Jersey. And they didn't live in New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, take you to a deep swamp. And they said, what's going on here? And I said to them, you know, honestly, well, I don't know how to make drinks. And there was a, <laughs> a great moment in the history of the world because the three of them just... And they didn't fire me. They put me on days. <laughs> because no one was ordering drinks. A couple of people would come in and just sit there all day and get loaded. But I mean just two or three. And they'd sit at the bar. And they were drinking shots of something, shots of whiskey. And I can do that. <laughs> and then you just take reservations and get deliveries of, well, more liquor. But that was, see, you have to remember something. There's, when it comes to bars, when it comes to people drinking, when you're associated in making a living with these places, I was mugged outside a comedy club in San Francisco. By the way, the good thing about comedy is these are all true stories. You really don't have to make things up. As you know, I think, in life, when things go a little haywire, you just tell what happened. And after there were two shows, it was on a Friday night, and I was walking back from the club. This is on the water in San Francisco on the do where the docks are. Gee, it sounds horrible to say it like that, but, you know, <laughs> on the docks, isn't that tough? But there was nice areas with good restaurants or something and, and a good comedy club. So after the second show, it's about midnight or 12.30, and... I had a drink with the owner and a couple of the other comics there, and I was staying at a hotel. It's about a mile away, and it's a nice night to walk. I always like to walk back and forth, and so I did. And I'm always wearing, for whatever it's worth, not that outfit, but I was always wearing a suit to perform in, and wingtips and a shirt and tie. And so when I walked back to the hotel, I was on a street behind these these restaurants, and I passed five guys who were leaning against there, and they were kid age, but they were gang kids. And I don't mean with a certain kind of colors on or a certain kind of clothes. I mean, as you walk up, you can see, and there's no one around there, and there were no, no, no lights. And as I was about 20 feet away, I thought, uh-oh, you just kind of know this is probably not a good moment coming up. And sure enough, as I walked past them, uh, one of them said, uh, hey, you have any uh, extra money or just something? And I tried my best to just kind of not wave it off, but kind of nod and just, you know, hold my hands up and, and keep going. And one of the guys walked over and really punched me a good one. And I mean, bam, that knocks you off your feet right in the, you know, right in the, right in the face. I don't know if you've ever been hit for real. I don't mean like an F-troop fight, you know. <laughs> you know, not like the, what, why I, I oughta, you know. Or Bonanza the chair over the head, hey! <laughs> you know. But, I mean, he knocked me off my feet, and they all gathered around me, and I, I didn't, I wasn't knocked out, but I, you know, I just, I knew this was kind of going to happen, and one guy said, you have your wallet? I didn't have my wallet with me because I always leave that in the hotel. Not because I was afraid of getting mugged, but 
I, I don't have the wallet with me. And I just said, I don't have it with me. It's in the hotel. And I was wearing a watch, as I always wear. And this was a, a like a flex band watch. So he took that off my hand. And one of the guys came back. I was, I'm on the sidewalk now for all this. He came over and he kicked me in the uh, left eye. And folks, I was the luckiest guy in the world. Because number one, he kicked me that once. And they stopped. They didn't do any more to me. And it started to bleed the way they say head wounds bleed. And it's coming down in, in a sheet and it's coming down. For, there was another cut up there. And it's coming down. And there's no one out there. It's, it's, it's the back street behind the, the docks in San Francisco. And a guy, a good Samaritan, came by in a car. He's driving by and he stopped and I, because I had started to get up, and he sees, you know, I'm in a suit, and there's a sheet of blood over my face. But then the funniest thing happened because he leans out the window. He was about, oh, I guess about 30 feet away, and he leaned out his window, and he just said, "Hey, buddy, are you okay? Hey, didn't I just see you on Letterman?" Which is true, and that's with a sheet, a full sheet of blood covering your head and your face and all your clothes. And the only thought I had was, hey, I'm really getting out there. (laughs) Isn't that great, though? And once again, true. And my friends heard I was mugged, so when I went home the next day... uh, you know, friends called, and it was, it was, it was fun and funny because people, well, you would know. Ellen DeGeneres called, and she said, "I told her about the the blood with the guy, you know." And she and she said, "Yeah, you know, you always hate being recognized when you don't look your best." But the cops were great, and they you'd go to a hospital, they stitch you up, and I was the luckiest guy in the world. And my parents were still alive then, and my uh, my dad had said to me that uh, he was, you know, he was proud because I, he's, you know, the the police had called and they said they they wanted me to testify, and I said testify about you know what I don't know. I couldn't see the guy, I couldn't recognize the guys because I didn't know their faces. I couldn't have looked... In fact, you looked like... In fact... <laughs> no, but I mean, I couldn't... I wouldn't be able to pick out anybody. And uh, that's probably probably better. If I if had seen the guys, I would have done it. But, you know, you don't want to testify. It's not like a TV show. If you go up back up to San Francisco and testify, and then they say, all right, thank you for coming... Okay, bye. And then you just walk out of the courtroom. Well, you'll go back to the hotel holding your own head. So the, you have to remember something. There are, there are places you can go, when, especially when you make your living in bars. There was one time I have been told comics have stories that are always said to be... Again, I'm just glad you hear that too. How'd the show go? Well, there was someone screaming. No, there wasn't. 
I was working in Philadelphia, in fact, three shows at a comedy club there that was above a Lebanese restaurant. And again, you can't make this up. <clears throat> and uh, Todd was an agent there. And he said to me, after three shows, he came up to me before the third, and that's just a lot of shows. I love comedy, but that's, that's, that's your work. And he came to me, this is a Saturday night, three shows, and he said, listen, I just got a call, and I recommended you, there's a prom in New Jersey. Remember, this is Philadelphia, so it's really, it's right next to New Jersey, right there. And he said, what we can do is, and it's for three in the morning, for you to go on at three in the morning. The parents and the teachers did a very smart thing because it was a rural high school in farm country, and they did a smart thing. They gave the kids the school so that they didn't have to drive anywhere. They said, you can decorate it anywhere you like, be put on any theme you want to put on, and they did a South Seas type of theme with uh, make like, sort of like South Pacific with hulas, hula girls, and now again, I don't even know what these gestures mean, <laughs> but... Uh, but he says, and uh, and they'll be you know, but they'll be dressed as pirates and sailors and stuff. And I said, fine, it sounds great. It was seventy five dollars, which is you know, listen, you're making money, you're out there, that's good. So I said, terrific. So after the third show, we get into his car, which is like a sixty six Nova, and he said, <laughs> but you know, it, there was no shocks left. I think he. <laughs> He'd been hauling gypsum or plaster or something. And it was, so it was very low. But it took a while, not that bad, a couple hours to get out to where we're going. He found it just fine. The kids and the parents and the guardians and the teachers were there. And it was, it was a prom. And uh, they all come into the auditorium. It wasn't a big fancy school, but it was clean and nicely put together. And to see me do my show, at, I was going on at 3.15 to do about a half-hour set. And it was nice. You see, you get paid, you do another show, and then, you, hey, you roll back into Philadelphia, you go back to the hotel. And the point is, I remember thinking, the first joke I ever wrote, ever, was a joke where I'd say that for my, for my act, you know, when you graduate from high school... It doesn't matter, 10 years later, 20 years later, you could be Secretary of State. If you go back to a high school reunion, you'll still see a teacher and just go, Hi, Mr. Cooper, remember when we set you on fire? <laughs> now, it's just a joke, and it's not that it's the greatest joke in the world, but I figured, that's a good joke. I'll open with that joke, because I can say to them, you know, it's funny, you're graduating from high school, and I can tell you something you'll go through. And I thought, you know, it's a good way to open. So I do the joke, hey, remember, Mr. Cooper, remember when we set you on fire? Not only is there no laugh, <laughs> but I mean less than zero. It was, there was a kind of a, uh, a gasp and a, almost a suction of air there. It's sort of like, you know, when a, on a heater in a cold climate, you can, when you see coming off in winter, you can almost see the heat coming off the radiator. I felt that. I felt a wave of hate coming off the audience. Now, this is about 500 kids and, and parents, and so it's about 1,000 people there. And the point is, on, on, I, I'm a comic, and I, hey, I'm a pretty good comic, and I'll do my job. So I just pulled it together. After that, I didn't stop and say, what in the world was that? I just 
started to move on and, and you do your best and you perform. And I did a half hour set and got it to a terrific place, which is to say that I couldn't feel the hate as much. <laughs> so there's nothing really holding it together, but you're getting all oh, your reactions. Hey, how do you like that? Oh, okay. And uh, at this point, as I'm on stage, the captain of the football team and the president of the student council and uh, she was the president, and they were actually a dating couple. And they went over to Todd, who was backstage. And they were, while well, I was still on, and they were really steaming mad. And they asked why that uh, Todd brought me as the comic. And they said to him, you can tell your friend we didn't appreciate the jokes about Mr. Cooper. <laughs> can you see this coming? Two weeks before this, a beloved Mr. Chips-type teacher died who taught at that school for 40 years, and everyone loved him. And he, his name was Mr. Cooper. And he died in a fire. What are the odds of this? They're crazy. And Todd said to them, you don't think this guy came out here two weeks ago to research what would really offend you? And they just said, yeah, well, they were just so mad they weren't going to listen. And uh, they just said, listen, we're, you know, we're not, we're going to get the principal and he's going to come over here. Then they ran off to get him. I, I just, at that point, the show was over and I thank you very much. And I got a little, and I ran, you know, over to Todd. I said, and what's going on? He just said, hey, quick, we got to go quick. We got to leave quick. <laughs> I said, what's wrong with you? I just got off stage. It was so weird. And uh, plus, we got to get paid. He said, I got paid before the show. I got to pay it cash. It's cash. They give me cash. We got to go now. Follow me. We've got to go now. And I said, what? And he drags me. We leave the high school and go down sort of a little slope to the parking lot there. Remember, now it's four in the morning in rural New Jersey, and he starts telling me what happened. He told me, gave me a brief outline. And I, you know what they always say, there's laughing at a funeral or you get nervous or something and you start laughing in the wrong place? I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> And he's leading me to his car, which, again, the 66 Nova, which we're both hoping starts. And now the captain of the football team and the president of student council and the principal came back to backstage, and we were gone. And they got twice as mad because they thought, we just ran out. And we were afraid to face them. And they got their friends. They got everybody to come out the high school and we just got in the car and saw it was it wasn't quite villagers with torches <laughs> in a Frankenstein movie but it wasn't far it wasn't far from that and they're coming down and there were you know guys grandmothers you know with with walkers and just being helped down everybody wanted to kill us and not kill, but 
And we got in the car, and I now I see them, and now I can't stop laughing still. I can't, because it looks like it's a movie. And he starts the car, which was typical. It was raining, but who cared? And I, he puts it in gear, and it starts to move, and I thought, well, that's all good. It's in gear, and it's moving. And we, they increased their, pe- their pace to catch us. Why? I don't know. <laughs> and so we got back out of that farm area somehow, and uh, he somehow didn't get too lost, and we stopped at a gas station. They directed him back to the freeway, and we got back. It was another couple-hour ride, but I'll tell you, he was kind of freaking out. He, was, he had sweated through his clothes, and I just... I stopped laughing eventually, but I said, that is just unbelievable. That's amazing. I can't wait to tell the guys at the comic strip. (laughs) Which is true. That's what it meant to be a comic. When something went right or wrong, you say, you just can't wait to put this in the big book, so to speak. (laughs) And I've been told since, that story is an award winner. So now you know that. We both know the same things, though. I'm always fond of saying that on the show, that Homer is Homer and Pluto is a planet. And remember, as always, if you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you folks, the game's over and you've won. And that is still the truest thing I know. Thank you for coming here today. If you like the show, tell a friend, and we'll see you next time.